morning, church. My name is Marwan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at City Bible Church, and uh, it's, it's a joy uh, to be with you this morning. It's always good to gather together as the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, uh, and yet there are some Sundays that feel a bit more, maybe I'm more eager for them, and usually it's when we're starting a new series. And so this morning, we begin a new sermon series on the I Am Statements of Jesus. And as we begin, I want you to go back with me and think of a time that you were in a job interview, or maybe it's an interview for an internship or apprenticeship. For some of you, that's a recent memory. Others, it was many years ago. Now, most interview questions are the same. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? I, I never liked that question. Felt like it was a trap. Why do you want to work here? And one question that's often asked is, what is one word or three words that you would use to describe yourself? And, and, and I wonder, if you had to choose just a word or a phrase, what would it be? Late to work. I'm overly anxious. Really handsome. Some of you love these kinds of questions, to find a word or a phrase. Others of you really hate them. Now, the reason this question is asked is because it's, it's meant to get to the core, to the core of who you are, and then the answers can be telling. If someone says, well, if I can think of three words, let's say handsome, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's revealing a lot about the person, right? Now, in a similar way, Jesus' I am statements are important and they're telling his statements declare beautiful truths about who God is and what he is doing. And so I'm eager and excited to work through these statements together as a church. And the reason is because it's good for our hearts and good for our souls to know our God more and more. A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it's true, isn't it? If you think that God is waiting to punish you, you will live in fear and in anxiety. You live in legalism and based on your good works, trying to earn his favor and love and his acceptance. Now, if you think that God doesn't care at all about the way that you live or care at all about your sin, then you will ignore holiness or right living. Friends, at this church, we care about right doctrine and the truth of the Scripture, not because we want to know more, but we understand truly that what we believe about God directly affects how we live. And so going directly to Jesus' words will help us to have a right belief about who He is, and, and I, I trust, I've seen in my life, I've seen in your lives, that we will see the fruit of the Spirit working in us, transforming us into the image of of Jesus. And yet, before we begin, I think some intro notes will be helpful for us as we begin this new series in a book that we're not in together as a church studying. These seven I am statements are found in the Gospel of John. And, and we need to know that John uses deep and beautiful imagery, lots of contrast. He likes working with light and darkness and life and, and death, lots of symbolism. But everything he is writing is pointing to one end, one primary purpose for writing his 
gospel. And that is that we would believe in Jesus. He tells us so in the end of his letter. Look with me. I think it's on the screen. uh, Or if not, you can open to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. At the very end of the gospel of John, he tells us why he wrote. And one of the reasons is because now that you know what you're looking for, he expects his letter to be read over and over again. John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there's something unique that John chose to do in his writing when he refers to Jesus' miracles. He never calls them miracles. He calls them signs. Now, as amazing as these miracles were, they were never the ultimate point. They, they, they pointed to something. Like, like any sign, it points to something else. For example, if you were driving on uh, the highway going to Wooden Bakery, and you saw a sign on the highway that said, Wooden Bakery, two kilometers away. Do you pull over at the sign and say, we're here? If that's how you go to restaurants, please don't invite me go have a meal with you. No, you, you don't park at the sign. The sign is pointing you to the end, to your goal. And so we can look at Jesus' first sign as an example, turning water into wine. Now, as, as incredible as it is to think about the miracle itself, the miracle wasn't the point, at least the main point. Right? We, we could consider how difficult it was for Jesus to do this Supernatural work, right? We can look at the chemical breakdown of water, H2O. Or, and then compare with the chemical formula of red wine, which is much, incredibly more complex. It's, it's incredible as we think about it, to think that the elements on that moment, in that time, in a word, in a prayer, elements were created and destroyed in order for wine to be created. But the supernatural work isn't the point of what Jesus was doing. And John focuses on the significance of the signs in his writing. Jesus' first miracle was a sign of the inauguration of the new covenant. The wine was made from water in jars that were reserved for the ritual purification. The wine, we're told, was better than anything before, and it was served at the end of the wedding feast. Abounding joy that shows what Jesus brings is better than what was before him. And of course, there's also allusions to the Last Supper and the blood of Jesus. Right? This miracle in John 2 isn't our sermon today, but we can see that it's much more than just, wow, look at this supernatural thing that Jesus did. Now, some of the I am statements were connected to miracles, like what we will see today in John chapter 6, but not all of them. And there's one last comment I want to make before we get into our passage this morning, and this falls in line with, again, John's deep symbolism and the layers of writing. If if you come from a Christian background, when you hear the phrase, I am, your mind probably goes back to the book of Exodus. Right? That's where God, through the burning bush, bush, spoke to Moses and gave his name. I am who I am. And most of the original 
hearers of John's gospel would have had a Jewish background. So, so they would have thought the same thing, right? The I am's of Jesus aren't a direct recalling of the name of God in Exodus, I am who I am. It's more like an echo. Listen with me to R.C. Sproul's words. He says, Jesus self-consciously uses language that is usually associated with divine pronouncements. So he knows what he's doing. He didn't just use this phrase out of nowhere. It is intentional, but, but there's a difference between the I am statements, there's seven of those, and the other times he says I am. For example, in John chapter 8, when Jesus interacts with the religious leaders, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Right? And that was a direct reference to the name of God. And the reason we know that we can point it out is because of how they reacted. We're told that they picked up stones and they're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill Jesus because what he did there, I mean, if he was lying, was blasphemy and punishable by death. Now, of course, we know that he wasn't blaspheming. He was telling the truth. Though it's not exactly the same in these I am statements, this is a thinly veiled revelation of the deity of Jesus. More than connecting these phrases with the name of God, with the I am, both Jesus in his speaking and John in his writing are pointing us back to the Old Testament promises. We are called to see that Jesus is the greater and ultimate fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies and the shadows of the Old Testament. We, we consider that a bit, didn't we, in the book of Zephaniah? And we'll see it again here as we look at Jesus' I am statements. Now, with that, please turn with me to John chapter 6. We will be looking at verses 22 through 53. A little bit of immediate context. Jesus in the middle, is in the middle of his public ministry where he taught and he performed miracles. Right? John 6 begins with Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, which, just for trivia, it was likely closer to 20,000. Uh, that's because numbers usually didn't include uh, women and children, so they just kind of surveyed and, and counted the men. Then after this uh, miracle of, of providing food to the multitudes, we have the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Then our passage starts in verse 22, this section of John is referred to as the bread of life discourse. And friends, it's a phenomenal portion of scripture. I can't remember exactly, but when we first started the church, the, the book of John was the first book that I preached through. Uh, and I think we had five sermons in the book, in, in, in chapter six alone. And so there's much here for us to dig into if we wanted to. If we dug deep enough, we could look into the layers of imagery and see so many ties to the Old Testament. For example, the miracle of walking on water and feeding the multitudes, being side by side, directly point back to Exodus and the major miracles of water, right? the parting of the sea and the bread provision from God. There's teaching on election, free will, substitutionary atonement, and we, your church, are not going to talk about any of it. Now, I'll make, a, I'll make a comment or two, but that's not our aim this morning. We want to consider what Jesus is saying as he declares, I am the bread of life. 
For those who are with us, uh, often I, I pre- present to you a kind of sermon outline, helps us work through the passage, but uh, our passage this morning is a narrative, it's a long passage, so we're just going to go through the verses. No sermon outline this morning, but we do have a main point. This is my prayer for you, this is what I hope that you will see this morning. Whether it's your first time seeing this or hearing this news of Jesus, or if you know it, that you would see it all the more clearly. Jesus alone can sustain and satisfy you. Jesus alone can sustain and satisfy you. And and by Jesus alone, I mean two things. Not only that Jesus is the only one who can bring true sustenance and satisfaction, but that if you had nothing else in this world but Jesus, you have everything. Because you have Jesus. Pray with me as we prepare to go to God's word. Would you join me in prayer, church? Jesus, we, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. This morning we ask that you'd open our eyes to see you. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice, hearts to receive, Father, minds to understand. We're covering much, so also give us Uh, patience this morning and and perseverance to to work through the passage that we would not miss the things you're showing us. We pray these things by your grace. Look with me to our text, uh, John chapter 6, verses 22 to 25. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum, looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And so, again, we're in Jesus' public ministry. The crowds were following, and we're talking thousands of people followed Jesus from town to town. But but Jesus calls them out because they're not following him for the reasons they should. They're following him for what he can give them. Look to John 6, uh, sorry, verses 26 to 27. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. And so he calls them out, doesn't he? Not out of anger or or anything like that, but he wants them to see that they're missing the point. right? In, In a sense, they're focusing on the miracle rather than what it points to. They're focusing on what he can do rather than what he is trying to teach and show. But he wants them to see that they're more concerned with hungry stomachs than hungry souls. And it's a good point of reflection for us because I think we struggle with the same temptations and, and needs. There, there's something in us that thinks that we know what's best for ourselves. And often the thing that we think we need, if I just had this, we think all our problems will be resolved. And usually that thing is something that perishes. 
These, these don't have to be bad things, but, but most often they are temporary things, right? Money, health, work, and, and whatever it might be. Now, for these crowds, what they wanted and needed was a meal. And they, they were probably hungry. The last meal they had was what Jesus just performed the day before. Right? And so this isn't to say that they were seeking worthless things or sinful things. This was a real need for them. But the issue here is that they interpreted their life based on this one need. It's short-sighted. It's not God-sized. You see, friends, we were created for eternity. And yet so often our focus is earthly. I've said this many times over the, the years of City Bible Church, and I'll say it again this morning. People are unsatisfied because they seek physical and temporary pleasures, though they have been created for spiritual and eternal joys. And Jesus points it out so clearly, doesn't he? He says that they are looking for food that perishes and they should be concerned with food that doesn't perish. Again, there are, there are layers of imagery here. But what's clear is that Jesus is contrasting two things, right? Things that are temporary with things that are eternal. And he's calling us to prioritize what is eternal. Friends, let's remember and remind one another that God has so much more for us than what we're able to see. John 6, 28 through 31. Again, we're just going to kind of be working through the narrative, the entire story, then we'll comment along, along the way, and then wrap it up as the passage is over. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, This is the work of God. That you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so again, they, like us, right, it's always easy to point, oh, they're missing the point when really we should recognize that we have the same thing. They're still thinking about food. He told them, don't think about food. Don't think about the things that perish. And yet, they're still thinking about food. He just fed them, and so they're ready for this next meal and miracle. Right? Dinner and a show. And they think, it seems, that they can trick Jesus. It's, it's a, as if they're saying, you've made these claims to be a great prophet, and if you are such a great prophet, maybe you can do what our greatest prophet, Moses, did. Bread from heaven. Again, food. And here's where an understanding of the Old Testament is important for us. In the Exodus account, after God set his people free from hundreds of years of, of oppression and slavery in Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And there's much that happened in that time. The giving of the law, uh, lots of grumbling, as, as we'll see in this account as well. Lots of miracles. And one of those miracles was that they were fed by God with bread from heaven. It was a daily provision by God, which, which taught them daily dependence on God. And that's because without God's provision, they would die. 
Without God, there is death. But they gave the credit to Moses, right? He did this for us. And so Jesus responds. Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus here points out that God is the one who provided then and is providing again now. And notice verse 33. The bread of God is the one. Speaking of a person. Speaking of himself, of course we know. And we're going to see how he develops that. And then they respond in really a, a, beautiful, a beautiful way. It's not, it's not sincere. But it's something that if it were sincere, if the motive was true, they were desiring these spiritual things, what a beautiful interaction. Look at verse 34. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And then here's our statement. Here's the I am statement, verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty Again, I think it's maybe more helpful for us to read it as, I am the bread of the life. Right? That, that's because Jesus isn't just some bread, some sustenance. He is the bread. And the life that he gives isn't just any life, but eternal life, a deep and lasting life. And they, they must have been confused, but the conversation is just starting. And here we get a glimpse of this sustenance and this satisfaction that, that comes through Jesus. No hunger. No thirst. Now, we'll get back into all this, but again, we need to work through the story, work through this narrative to have a foundation of what's happening. And we see that the story will develop and build towards the main point of the teaching. So look with me to verses 36 to 40. 36 to 40. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. Such a beautiful and rich teaching, and Jesus is saying so much, but notice with me their response. Verses 41 to 42. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? It's so real, isn't it? Have you ever had a conversation with someone, they completely missed the point because you mispronounced the word or because you, you said maybe one detail that was wrong? They say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right? It, it's human. And this idea of grumbling, again, I pointed it out because it, it characterized God's people in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. But to grumble isn't to complain or to, or to just be upset about one thing, but it's to have an attitude of frustration. 
an attitude of dissatisfaction. And so they here grumbled. But they're missing the point completely. And, and there is a difference between not understanding, right? They're allowed to have never heard the phrase where Jesus says, I am the bread. They're allowed to pause and say, okay, I don't understand what's happening here. But there's a difference between that and not being willing to understand. And that's where these people are right now. Let's read a few more verses and then we'll pause for some comments. Verses 43 to 47. Jesus answered them, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Now, in, in the beginning of this sermon, I, I gave a heads up uh, that there's a lot that we can't get into, and much of it is here in these last several verses that we just read. But I, I will make a few short comments. We hear Jesus highlighting a few things. For one, the importance of coming to Jesus and believing in him. And, and I hope you heard and noticed that this is a call for anyone Anyone who comes to Jesus, he will not cast out. He will not reject all who come to him. The desire of God is that all would see Jesus and believe in him. But he also tells us that the only way to come to God the Son is if God the Father draws you to him. And so, so these are key teachings for the doctrines that you might hear in this church or other places, the doctrines of election and the irresistible grace of God. Now, we also see what's commonly known as the perseverance of the saints. I told you there's a lot. And I wonder if you heard in the text. Those that God the Father gives to his son Jesus, Jesus will never lose. He will keep us to the very end. And, and we can have an assurance of our salvation not only because Jesus won't lose us, but because we have this promise that he will raise us up on the last day. There is so much depth here, and yet there's still more. As a follow-up from John 5, uh, we, we see more teaching on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The, their union and their unity is seen in, in a couple different ways. For one, Jesus is sent to communicate the will of his Father. right? As one who is in the Father and sent from the Father. But also, did you notice that Jesus calls God his father? Right? The, the Jews would refer to God as the father or our father. We can even think of how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray like this. Our father, right, who is in heaven, but never my father. And so look again with me to verse 40. I'm sorry, I'm not sure what's going on. Technical difficulties is what's going on. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. All this teaching, what we're not getting into, 
is tied to Jesus' I am statement. All of this is connected to the having of life that comes through Christ alone and being raised up. And so this bread of life, this bread from heaven has to do with life being brought down from above. Jesus is claiming to be the life that's come down from heaven and he's calling us to see him. And not only to see him, but to to come to him, to respond to him. There's different imagery being used here, but it's all communicating the same thing. Believing in Jesus for life. Remember with me how this entire conversation started. The crowds asked Jesus, what can they be doing to be doing the works of God? And how did Jesus respond? He didn't say, okay, well, here's, here's the five things that you need to know. And once you do that, here's the next steps of the phase of your journey. No, he says, the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. Friends, I I don't know what you think your greatest need in your life is right now. But the Bible is clear that all of our greatest need is to be made right with God. And the way to be made right with God is to believe in Jesus. There's no amount of good works that you can do to earn God's favor. It's, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing. And as we keep reading, the imagery develops. We'll, we'll be able to understand more clearly what it means to believe in Jesus as the giver of life and the sustainer of life. More imagery. Let's, let's get deeper. Verses 48 to 50. Again, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. Again, we're seeing a contrast here. Jesus is contrasting God's provision in the past with his greater and truer and ultimate provision now. In the past, God's provision sustained his people with heavenly bread. They would have perished immediately without it, but Jesus is saying they eventually died, whether of old age or sickness or whatever it might be, they died. And what Jesus is saying is that he, the bread of life that's come down from heaven, gives eternal life. We will eat and not die. Friends, who Jesus is and what he offers is far greater than anything in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and and was fulfilled in him. Look with me to verses 51 through 59. We'll finish up our passage and we'll consider a few things together. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, the, the, the Jews got distracted by the imagery, but it is strange. I haven't heard response amongst you, right? Eat my flesh. But what, what's Jesus saying here? A few things. For one, there is an aspect where Jesus is speaking to their hardened hearts. It's almost like when they grumbled, then he, he got in a little deeper. Right? He knows that they're not wanting to listen or believe, and so there's a bit of provocation. Right? He, he's pushing away these false followers. He's calling them, either you follow me, and this is what it looks like to follow me, to have life in me, or stop following me because you're not truly following me. And we read at the end of chapter 6 that many of those who listen say, this is, a hard, this is a hard teaching. And they left. They stopped following him. But also we see a deepening of the imagery. Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life, is ultimately about what? It's not about carbs, right? It's about feasting. The bread, of course, is pointing back to the heavenly bread from the Exodus story. There are deep connections and important fulfillment of prophecy. But the conversation is about food, right? Don't work for food that perishes. Right? Food gives us life. It, it sustains our life. And there is no life without food, just like there is no life without God. And, and, and here's the idea of the bread of life being our, subs, uh, our sustenance. Just like food, we either eat or we die. From food to bread to flesh, right? Different details and images, but speaking of the same thing. But why flesh? It is a bit descriptive. Well, it's mostly spiritual imagery. Jesus often taught spiritual lessons using physical imagery, like being born again in the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It wasn't about actually, you know, Nicodemus thought, well, how can I return? How can a person return to their mother's womb? Well, he's speaking spiritual imagery, right? Spiritual lessons using physical imagery. Or while speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, he spoke of a living water, right? By standing next to a well, speaking of living water that will quench all thirst, and so it is mostly spiritual, but it's also foreshadowing his death. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood speaks to Jesus' very real death on the cross. And this is why when we say we gather to church to, to hear the gospel and to sing the gospel and to pray the gospel, but also we see the gospel through the, through the elements, don't we? We're reminded, as Pastor Anwar will lead us after the sermon, reminded of, of the body of Christ that was broken and his blood that was spilled. And we know, don't we, 
that this is how Jesus gives life. Through his death. And that's how food works. The food that you eat is dead. A cow is in hamburger until it dies. I know. I'll get to you vegetarians in just a minute. Don't worry. Sheep. A sheep isn't shawarma until it dies. It's also preparing your not only spiritual appetites, but our physical appetites for fellowship after, after church, right? Chicken isn't tawuk until it dies. But vegetarians, you don't escape the illustration. A potato must die to turn into batata harra. Right? Wheat must die to be made into bread. Right? Life for one is transferred through death of another. And that's what Jesus is teaching. For us to feast on him and have life, the life that he offers, he must die. And what happens if you don't eat food? You die. Friends, do you believe that Jesus came to earth to live the life that you were supposed to live and, and then die the death that you deserved so that you would have eternal life? That, that is the call of the gospel. That's what we're called to believe. If you believe in Jesus as your only means of life before God, the scriptures declare with such assurance that you will live before God forever. But if you don't believe, you will perish. And so here this morning, if you've not heard before, put your hope and trust in Jesus alone. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. The one who feasts on him will live forever. I want to close this morning with a final thought. If you're remembering the main point, you're saying, well, we talked a lot about sustenance. Where's the satisfaction? So we've considered deeply that Jesus alone gives us life and sustains our life. But it's more than just sustenance. Jesus satisfies. Now, we all have our favorite foods. I may have once or twice shared some of my favorite foods from the pulpit, if you've come to the church before. But can we all agree that there's nothing that smells better than fresh baked bread? It, truly, is there anything? that The simplicity of just whatever happens with the, the dough and the yeast and the rising and the sugars in there. And that's why I don't go to the living room much anymore. Right? Shia is always baking something delicious, and I'm there trying to work, and I'm just distracted by cheesecake and brownies and croissants and whatever it might be. Right? There's something incredible about the smell of freshly baked bread. And, and, I, and I wondered as I was preparing what that bread tasted like that Jesus made. Right? He, he fed the multitudes with bread and fish. What did that bread taste like? We know that the miracle of water into wine was the best wine in the party. Even the master of the ceremonies said when he tasted it, what is this? He said, usually you serve the good stuff, higher quality, better taste. Usually serve the fine wine at the beginning, and when people have gotten a bit drunk, exactly what's happening in the scripture, if we can talk about it, uh, later, 
But once the party gets drunk and, and tipsy and they're relaxed, then you bring out the watered-down stuff because they, they can't tell the difference. And so he says, why, why would you bring the best thing I've ever tasted in my life at the end of the party? And so, so I, I wonder about the bread. What heavenly flavors would have been tasted? What kind of satisfaction did they experience? Not only that they were fed, that their hunger was satisfied, but in which ways did they delight in the works of God by the Son of God? What we do know, rather than my speculation of what that bread tasted like, was that the multitudes were filled and they were satisfied. There were baskets left over. Abundance of satisfaction. Friends, the scriptures invite us to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And so let's, let's encourage one another. Let's not pass up the offer to experience the joys and satisfactions of God. Dear brothers and sisters, Christ alone can satisfy your deepest wants. And so look to him. Let us together look to him to sustain us and to satisfy us. Would you pray with me? Father God, I recognize that there is something that, that needs to happen right now. We're just when we gather under your preached word. Lord, many of us say yes and amen and we understand it, but there's, there's something that needs to happen from receiving these words of truth and life from our ears and our minds, Lord, but they need to be transferred into our hearts. Lord, it goes from just something intellectual, some basic knowledge to something that is transformative. And Lord, that's not a work I can do. It's not a work that anyone can do. That's reserved for you alone. And so, Father, Holy Spirit, would you work in us this morning? Lord, convict us in the ways that we need to be convicted. Father, encourage us in the ways that we need to be encouraged. Lord, help us to truly believe and desire to look to you for all of our needs and all of our wants. In Jesus' name. Amen.